All right, everyone, greetings and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. Um, your typical host with the most, Jay Hersko. With me here, I have my partner in crime, Ms. Sarah Back. Sarah, thank you for joining. Hello. And the topic of this week, we have esteemed author Alfie Cohen on with us. Alfie is going to be is here with us to discuss his book, Punished by Rewards, which Sarah honestly harassed me into reading. And then <laughs> I read it and it completely changed how I view the carrot and the stick. So Alfie, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Okay. So I, I guess, Alfie, I'll start with, uh, so I loved it. I loved the book. I absolutely loved it. It really did honestly change how I view incentives and rewards. I think the one line that jumped out at me and I have it written on a post-it and the wall next to me, it's, you made the remark of inside every carrot, there's a stick. And I never, I never ever thought about it like that. And after reading that, it was one of those moments where the wife came in the room and she thought I was kind of stroked out because I was sitting there staring off in the space <laughs> because I never thought about it that way. Right. Well, I think that's true on two levels. One, the more literal level is, um, you know, if you're if you're offering to reward people and they end up not getting the reward, they feel punished. But the larger and more important respect in which that's true is that rewards and punishments are not opposites. They're not two different strategies. They're just two sides of the same coin. And the coin doesn't buy very much. They're both ways of doing things to people to Mm -hmm. make them obey Mm -hmm. rather than ways of working with people to achieve, one hopes, more ambitious goals. So uh, the stick, the punishment, is where we say to people, do this, or here's how I'm going to make you suffer. And in the case of carrots or rewards, we say to people, do this, and you'll get that. But again, they're both about imposing power to get what the powerful people want the less powerful people to do. It's just that... You know, in the case of rewards, it's sugar-coated control. The the point, um, to the point about that, you know, both sides of that, the reward versus the punishment, the, the personal anecdote, and I was sharing this with Sarah, th- this really resonated with me with was, I'm sure you've heard this story before, I worked in a company that had stacked ranking. And with stacked ranking, only a certain percentage of people, because it's due to a distribution curve, can get the top rank. And there was one year I was with the company... I think a total of six years, the one year I actually got the quote unquote A, which was the highest bonus I could achieve, the highest ranking, whatever. I quit right after. I quit not soon after. And when I said to my boss, I'm going to be honest with you, this wasn't the deciding factor, but it was one of the contributing factors. I have given the same amount of effort every year I've been here. I have have worked just as hard as I'm always going to work. And knowing not only that this year was the year I get it, but knowing that next year it is statistically impossible that I'll get it because we artificially constrain those A's. We're going to give it to somebody else. I think that's right. kind of the point of your book, right? I feel like I'm taking that on the on the chin for, for doing the same job I've always done. Well, you know, actually, I wrote another book earlier about what you've described, which is something worse than rewards, and that's awards. Mm. An award is a reward that has been made artificially scarce. So now, in addition to the inherently destructive effects of manipulating people with doggy biscuits, which is what all incentive plans pay for performance, Mm -hmm. bonuses, and so on are about, now we've added a completely separate additional level of harm, which is competition 
where we say to people, it's not just that we're going to try to control you by treating you like a pet, which is what incentives are about. It's that we're going to pit you against other people so that even if all of you do a terrific job, we are going to only provide the goody to a, a certain number. We will make there be losers. And everybody loses in a race to win, even the winners. But maybe because we have only a limited time today to talk, let's set aside that question of the most toxic arrangement that involves a contest, which is about defeating one's colleagues, and just talk about how, even if we got rid of that, we never had a, a system like that of of stacked rankings of uh, artificially scarce goodies. And we said, everybody who achieves at this level, who meets the quota or whatever, gets the bonus, gets the recognition, gets the reward. Even that's terrible for the reasons that I described uh -huh. in, in the book, Punished by Rewards, because of its fundamental misreading of human psychology and motivation. Yes. So when people ask me about, you know, how do you motivate people? I say, you can't. You can try to force people to do things, but you can't make them want to do it. And so I, if I'm a manager, I don't focus on how to make people more motivated. I focus on the different kinds of motivation. And what psychologists have been telling us for the better part of half a century is fundamentally there are two different kinds of motivation, um, which are described usually as intrinsic and extrinsic. And interestingly, even people who are familiar with those words and could define them if I asked, then go back to talking about how do you motivate people, forgetting <laughs> that what matters is the difference. So intrinsic motivation means you do something because you find it valuable or meaningful mm -hmm. uh, or joyful. It's worth doing in its own right. Extrinsic motivation means you do something so that it produces a result outside of, extrinsic to the task, like you get more money or a gold star or an A or an ice cream or something or a trophy. And what I try to develop in, in Punished by Rewards is to show that the research indicates it's not just that intrinsic and extrinsic motivation are different, which is true. And it's not just true that intrinsic is better, deeper, more lasting in terms of the kind of motivation. Yeah. What, what, what really matters is that intrinsic motivation, the desire to do a good job, is killed by extrinsic motivators. Or to put it differently, the more you try to reward people, the more they tend to lose interest in whatever they had to do to get the reward. That was another part of the book that blew my mind because I never thought about that. And you use the example of Pizza Hut with the, the summer program for kids where, hey, you read a book, you get a pizza. And then you actually reach the point where you said, well, if we were really going to give them a good reward, we wouldn't give them a pizza. We'd give them another book because you're, you're, you're kneecapping the motivation I have to do something by tying a reward to it. And I never thought about that. And then I look back in my personal life and I went, yeah, that does kind of make sense where I've been given, you know, 
the, the gold star, something to do something else where I went, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. Right. And that is a, a tragedy in its own right, particularly with children. The best way to destroy kids' interest in learning is to grade them or give them some other goodie like a pizza or anything. It doesn't matter what the reward is. And by the way, let me just pause here for a moment. Trying to solve this problem by tweaking what kind of reward we give or how or when or on what schedule is a massive exercise in missing the point. This is a problem that cannot be solved by doing a different kind of incentive plan because all incentives are founded on this fundamentally flawed assumption about human behavior. But anyway, it's particularly a tragedy with kids where we're killing the things that matter most by rewarding them. Um, if, if, I mean, if, if you want to destroy kids' interest in reading, you give them a prize for reading a book. If you want to make kids selfish and self-centered, you praise them for helping. Good job. I really like the way you helped out there. That kid just became a little less concerned about other people because you told them the reason to help is not because it's the right thing to do, not because it makes the other kid feel good, but because it will lead to him getting a patronizing pat on the head or some kind of recognition. So any kind of reward in destroying the intrinsic motivation that we would really, I hope, like to promote in employees, in students, and in children, that's a very bad thing in its own right. But it also helps to explain all the research demonstrating that the quality of people's work or learning in school tends to decline when they are rewarded for doing higher quality work. The interest going down helps to explain the excellence coming down. As study after study has found that people given no reward tend to outperform those in organizations that are dangling goodies in front of them to try to improve their performance. Mm -hmm. So Alfie, there's so much research, as you've stated, and your book is not terribly new. I remember reading it when my children were little. So <laughs> why- It came out with a new edition a couple of years ago where I, oh. I, uh, I, I reviewed a whole bunch of new research for the, believe it or not, 25th anniversary edition of the wow. book which means I must have written it in fourth grade. <laughs> <laughs> so this data has been out there and you've been preaching this and writing about it and the other authors have as well, but yep. leaders still are pay for performance, reward the behavior. Why do you think yep. this hasn't become more commonplace in organizations? Well, the, the most optimistic answer to that question would be because people don't know about this research or mm -hmm. haven't thought about the logic. But I suspect there are other reasons too. One is that using rewards or punishments to control people is a lot easier. It, you know, it doesn't take any talent or skill <laughs> um, or time or care or courage to say to people, jump through my hoops and I'll give you a goodie. Yeah. Working with people to help, help them figure out how do we solve this organizational problem how do we help people become more excited about what they're doing? How do we give them things that's more exciting? How do we provide collaboration and autonomy and so on? That takes a lot more talent and skill and time and care and courage. So the no 
the mindless approach is easier, so it hangs on. That's one answer. Another answer is it keeps the people on top comfortably in power. Mm. So, who, I mean, my favorite Latin question is cui bono? Who benefits from this given arrangement? And the answer to any kind of control-based system, including incentive plans, is the people on top who get to decide on the whole program and who gets the goody. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it doesn't benefit the workers or the customers, but it sure as hell benefits the people who sit on the throne and say, a, a bonus for you, but not for you. A third reason is because it's a, our whole society is drenched in Skinnerian behaviorism. As we've already talked about, and as I talk about in my book, it's done not only in workplaces, but in, uh, you know, in classrooms and in families and in other arenas, too. And a lot of times people are just so used to it. It's not only accepted, it's expected. And then yet one more explanation for why we, we don't question this and change, given that the research is so clear that it not only doesn't work, but can't work, no matter how you do it, is that a lot of people don't know what else to do. Mm. Well, mm. Yeah, I mean, look, punishments, if, if I'm sitting in the room with you with a baseball bat, and I say, stand up right now, or I'm going to hit you on the head, and you believe I'll do it, you'll stand up. And similarly, if I say to you, stand up and I'll give you $1,000, you know, obviously you're going to stand up. If you don't, you're either awfully defiant or terribly overpaid. So, um, so to the question, do punishments work or do rewards work, the answer is, yeah, they work to get one thing and only one thing ever, which is temporary compliance at a huge cost. Mm. But if you're just focused on short-term results, and usually quantitative rather than qualitative results, then you may say, well, when I, when I bribed people, they, they did what I want last week, so see, rewards work, and I don't know what else to do, and so the bad practice continues indefinitely. Sarah and I have had a lot of conversations, you know, in all of the in all of our training classes, whatever the idea of theory X and theory Y people come up, yep. or some people are motivated by money. I am in my personal experience, I'm convinced that the only people that truly believe in theory X people, people motivated by money, are other people who are motivated by money. Like they can't understand someone not being motivated by the concept of money. And and I'll give you an example. I was in a I, I snuck into an executive training class at a previous job with with people who were two or three rungs up above me on the pay scale. And when it came down to, it was a management training class, when they talked about, you know, soft skills and dealing with people and whatnot and motivation, I made the remark that I'm not here because of the check. Cause if I was really here because of the check, I'd go to the competitor down the street, which pays 20 grand more a year for what I do. And there were people who's, who were aghast. Like what well, they could not conceptualize the fact that corporate family. I'm not there. For, I'm not there for the money. I'm not, I mean, well, most people are like you, actually. Theory X and Theory Y uh, came from Douglas McGregor, and uh, it's been a while since I've read him, but my recollection is that he wasn't talking about different employees, some of whom are motivated by money and some aren't. He was talking about the misconception of managers who falsely believe that the only thing that motivates people is the Theory X. You know, you got to watch them all the time, and then you... You give them a doggy biscuit when they 
when they do what you want. And McGregor's point is that misses the boat because all human beings fundamentally have these other needs. And indeed, there have been many, many examples of survey research of employees where you ask people to rank order the things that matter to them most in a job. And the vast majority of people say, you know, I need enough money to live on. Mm -hmm. But what really matters to me is having good people to work with, having some say about what I do all day, having interesting work, and so on. And then when you ask the managers, what do you think motivates your employees, they all say money. And then they proceed to manage based on that universal misconception. <laughs> and pizza parties. Don't forget yeah, the pizza parties. parties. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right, right. So Alfie, Jay and I are part of a community where we're trying to go into workplaces and help people love their work more, be more effective, that kind of thing. How do you think we can take the research and writing that you've done and best implement that in organizations to help people perform better and love their jobs more, et cetera? Well, first, you, as the full physician credo says, you stop doing harm. Mm -hmm. which means you've got to stop anything that looks like a punishment or a reward, even if we use different terms for it. Nobody likes the term punishment, so we call it, you know, uh, consequences for kids mm -hmm. or accountability or something like that. And, and even rewards, we prefer to use euphemisms uh, like positive reinforcement or recognition or something like that. We recognize, A, this is what we're doing. We're bribing and threatening people. B, that's not necessary. Some of the best organizations never do anything like that. C, it's harmful. And here are all the ways it's harmful. Here's what the research says. Let's look at the long-term and deeper results um, in our organization and then stop doing that. And now let's reframe what we're doing. First of all, we don't just look at behavior the more times that word appears in, in, in meetings, the more worried I get. Because, and this is another sort of answer to your earlier question about if the research is so clear that rewards are inherently counterproductive. Again, I emphasize not just ineffective, counterproductive. Why do we keep doing them? Another answer to that is because we're, we're behaviorists. We're stuck looking at behaviors, which refers to only the actions on the surface that you can see and measure. And when you do that, you lose, you miss the values and reasons and motives that underlie and inform people's behaviors. You miss the human beings and their experience of the workplace when all you focus on is the behavior. And so what, what I would er, er, invite you to invite your clients to do is to stop being behaviorists and start looking at full three-dimensional human beings, uh -huh. figure out what can support the intrinsic motivation that, that we want to promote and encourage. First, you get rid of the stuff that's killing it, like reward plans. Uh -huh. But then you think about what does promote it. And in, in the latter half of, of my book, I talk about you know, not just what to stop doing, but what to do more of or do differently in families, in schools, in workplaces. The chapter on workplaces is called Thank God It's Monday, and it focuses on three things that I think have a constructive effect 
and I, which I call just because, you know, you're, you're, you're made to do these little cutesy mnemonics, so I call them the three C's. First C is content. Now, what is it that we're asking people to do? One of the contemporaries of Douglas McGregor was a guy named Frederick Hertzberg, an early humanistic management theorist, and one of my favorite sayings from anybody was a sentence of his. He said, I know this by heart, idleness, indifference, and irresponsibility are healthy responses to absurd work. (laughs) Spot on, spot on. So when, yeah, when people don't give a crap, when, when people cut corners, the American response is to hold them individually accountable and blame the victim rather than looking at the systemic causes of those reactions. And in many cases, it has to do with what they've been asked to do, not with something wrong with the individuals who are not doing it right. So that's the first C, the content of the work. The second C is collaboration, so that people feel supported by a community and part of a community and are able to exchange their talents and resources with others because a group, a well-functioning group, is far more productive on most tasks than the most expert individual is on his or her own. Mm -hmm. And that means obviously getting rid of what we know kills collaboration and community, which is any kind of competition. But it also means taking the affirmative, proactive step to support the growth of community so people don't feel isolated either. And the third C is choice, to give people more say about what they're doing and with whom and on what schedule and for what purpose. The best managers do a lot less telling and a lot more asking. And so when, you, when I have found organizations that, that, you know, look at the content of the work, try to promote collaboration and support people's autonomy, they don't need to feel, they don't feel the need to treat them like pets, you know, by dangling goodies in front of them. Yeah. I, I'm so, you know, uh, Alfie, I, do, I dug down the rabbit hole with a lot of your work, right? I ended up on the blog site, I was reading a whole bunch of stuff, and I'm, I'm, Glad you brought up the Hertzberg quote because there was another quote I found one of your blog posts that I actually wrote down. It's on a post-it next to me and it says, if you want people motivated to do a good job, give them a good job to do. And that yeah, quote that's, you that's just had, that, that's that's it. That's it, right? This is why people are quote unquote lazy or unproductive. Well, what kind of crap job did we give them? Are, are they just moving rocks around, you know, breaking rocks into smaller rocks and then gluing them back together? I mean, I, I get it. That's a great... um Sarah, for what for our world, that's a great lagging indicator of the quality of work you're asking people to do. The you know we always complain about poor work definition passing into the system leads to garbage coming out the back end. That well, there you go. There's your sign. Absolutely. And put that together with the third C, the idea of choice. If the question is how can we make jobs, job assignments, tasks that are more meaningful. That's, that should be decided by everybody, just like compensation should be divided by, decided by everybody, not only by those at the top. So this is yet another answer to the question that you asked before, which is a question, obviously, I've given a lot of thought to. You know, <laughs> if the research is so clear, how come we're still doing this garbage? And yet another answer is because on some level, people understand that 
Yeah, they say, yeah, that's great, those three C's, I like them all. But if you think about them carefully, especially the last one with choice, it really is about challenging existing power structures. It really is about the ideal organizations don't just pay people in a different way, i.e. without you know, pay for performance, and they're not just friendlier places. On some level, they're more democratic in an important sense of that word. Noam Chomsky said, the American corporation is one of the most totalitarian institutions ever created by humans. And one of the, I have given talks to, I mean, I don't talk now these days to, to many corporate groups. I tend to talk more about uh, education and parenting. But I, I talk to at a lot of Fortune 500 companies, and let me tell you, their reaction to this message is very different with ordinary employees as opposed to when you move up. The more power they have, the more they smell the, 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 the frightening aroma of democracy in this, and that's the last thing they want because you're not at the top of the, uh-huh. of the pole. In, in a democracy, it's about sharing power and decision-making. And ultimately, that's what I'm about. Um, now, you can separate it from that and not share my view that totalitarian institutions, especially those with you know, unethical practices like stacked ranking, um, need to be uprooted because they're bad for human beings and ultimately for productivity. And you can just look at the research that says, well, I don't want to go that far, but I can't argue with all the research saying that reward programs not only do not but cannot work, so let's get rid of those. But ultimately, if you if you hop aboard my train, we're, we're moving to the next stop, which is where we ask deeper, more unsettling questions about who makes the decisions and for whose benefit. Yeah. That really I, so I know, I know we have limited time, Alfie, but I have one more question for you. So I recently read a book, um, well, not that recently, by Paul Zak called The Moral Molecule, and it talked a lot about um, oxytocin and trust and how that works. And one of the things he talks about is the history of human behavior and evolution. And and I think the bon mot he throws out or the example he gives is the example of the Viking berserker, right? And how the the Vikings, when they would conquer a certain area, there was always the threat of unleashing the berserkers. And that that fear kind of kept people in line. And I'm, I'm trying to jibe your your argument, which I think makes 100% sense, how does that, does that run into conflict maybe with maybe behaviors that we're used to evolutionarily just living with? And it's just, have we, have we evolved, right? Maybe my, I'm try, having trouble formulating this question late on a Friday. Um, have we evolved to expect that fear? And does the removal of that fear maybe just totally change the calculus? I'm I'm not sure I understand the the argument. What are we in fear of? According to this this view, so the argument was that um, the Vikings kept around the berserkers, right, as almost like an enforcement mechanism to say those conquered people shall fall into line. Otherwise, we're going to unleash these people and they're going to run roughshod over your your area. Um, and my, I, I'm extrapolating that forward through human history to say, have we have we reached the point, like especially with some of your argument uh, in your book, that we don't really need those berserkers anymore? Like it, it's well, it's a sure cultural anachronism. Ever- I'm not sure they were ever needed, frankly, and the fact that you are the author identifies the Vikings in particular suggests it's not a universal behavior across true, all true. human history or across all, 
all societies. There are much more peaceful and cooperative societies, especially less industrialized ones that have been very effective in their own realm. Um, and I'm always a little bit allergic to sort of simple reductive <laughs> reductive logic. <laughs> uh, um, I don't think you have to reach back thousands of years or say this is something we've evolved. I mean, humans have the capability to be altruistic and to be selfish, to be aggressive and to be peaceful, to be cooperative and to be competitive. I wrote another whole book years ago called The Brighter Side of Human Nature, in which I argued that cooperation and and altruism are as much at the core of human nature as the darker stuff. Um, so we have the capacity as reasonable, reasoned people to choose which aspects of our human potential we want to actualize. It is certainly true within our lifetimes and in this society that there is an absurd, exaggerated version of control. It's much more about doing to than working with in most American companies and in much of our lives in this culture. Um, but it never made sense. It doesn't make sense now, and we have the capability to do things differently in a way that's not only more humane, but as I argue in this book and in other books, also a lot more productive. Mm -hmm. Perfect, perfect. Sarah, I know we're coming up on time. I'll give you a chance for one more remark and then we'll wrap us up. Yes, Alfie, I know, um, yeah, like like he said, we're running out of time, but I wanted just to say quickly, personally, that I read Unconditional Parenting when my first child was born. I think he was maybe two. And it has completely revolutionized the way that I parent and who I am as a person and how my kids are now that they're 19, 20, and 17 where we don't use rewards and punishments and we have relationships and we talk to each other and we ask for help. And like, it just changed my whole life, which oh, is lovely to hear. Thank you for that. Although just writing a book, I can't claim any credit. It was, it was you who, who did that with, <laughs> with your kids, but I'm happy to hear stories like that. Yeah. It's been really life-changing. So I just wanted to get that in and say, thank you before we ended. Oh, I appreciate you saying that. And I can't think of a better way to end the show. So Alfie, thank you so much for your time. We're going to have links to your website, to your books in the show notes. Uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening. Um, please check out Alfie's work. You know, we talk about changing the world of work and how we're going to do things differently. And to Alfie's point, you know, it's our his ending remark about we choose which path we want to go down. It's up to all of us to choose that, that better path. So Alfie, once again, thank you so much for your time. And until next time, this is the Agile Uprising Podcast signing out.